to turn to Luke chapter 3 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 3, we'll be looking from verse 7 through verse 18. I'd like to read that for you. John, being John the Baptist, said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Two Sundays in the church calendar, two of the Advent Sundays are given to John the Baptist. It's odd, this message that I just read to you at Christmas time. I think we'll see why in a few moments. In verse 7, we find John, who was introduced back in chapter 1, is the son of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. In verse 7, we find John holding a baptismal service. To us, That seems like a fine and familiar religious ritual. But to Jewish people of the first century, baptism was an entirely novel thing to do. Jews didn't practice baptism, except in one infrequently performed ritual. When a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, he underwent baptism. He met with a priest, only men could convert. He met with a priest and other Jewish men, and in a private ceremony, took off all his clothes, got into a baptistry of sorts, and when he came up out of the water, he was in his birthday suit. The image was that he was a newly born man and born as a Jew, as the people of God. But people who were Jewish by birth, those who were descended from Abraham and were racially Jewish, weren't baptized. So when John started baptizing Jews, it was something altogether different. And it generated a lot of buzz. People were coming from everywhere to see what was going on, to hear John speak. And multitudes were being baptized. And so doing, they were saying, I want to start again. And this time I want to truly live like one of God's people. Now, John's baptism services weren't like any baptism you've ever attended. 
Look at his call to worship in verse 7. Crowds are coming to him. John calls out in a loud voice, You brood of vipers, you offspring of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I don't know about you, but if the preacher started calling me a baby snake, I would be looking for the exit door. Yet these people weren't looking for the exit door, but for the waters of baptism. They knew they were snaky. They were professing one thing and living another. God had been speaking to their souls about that duplicity, and they wanted to change. That deep desire to change is one of the markers that it's really God who's at work in us. When we hear some gifted speaker who stirs our emotions, we may want to escape consequences. But when God stirs our souls, we want to change. But not everyone who came to hear John wanted to change. Some were just caught up in the emotion of it all. They wanted to have a spiritual experience. Some were curious. Matthew tells us about those people. Some just wanted to look good. And so John, recognizing this, told them point blank, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now we're going to misunderstand that unless we have some idea of what John meant when he used the word repentance. If we start with the current connotations of the word, the synonyms in the thesaurus are regret, sorrow, remorse, shame. If we start there, we're going to have trouble making any sense of John's preaching. Repentance is not sorrow, though sorrow can lead to repentance. Repentance is not shame. A person can feel great shame, just intense, overwhelming shame, without experiencing repentance at all. I think Judas Iscariot is an example. Repentance is a corrected way of thinking, a radical change of mind about oneself, about others, but especially about God. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying your thinking is wrong because you haven't taken into account the fact that God's rule is here, it's arrived. See the truth and change your mind. Repentance is not a change of behavior, but it inevitably leads to changes in behavior. That's what John's talking about when he says produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance, this radical change of mind, leads to changes in our lifestyle. And some of those changes will happen in predictable ways. For example, when a person grasps the reality of his situation with God, with others, and has this change of mind, that is when he experiences repentance, he soon realizes that practicing deceit is incompatible with the way things really are. And when that happens, the fruit in keeping with repentance is honesty. Sure, it will be necessary to overcome ingrained habits. But repentance makes even that possible. When reality dawns on a man and he changes his thinking, he begins to see, for example, pornography is a cheap and destructive imitation of what God plans for us. And so he wants it out of his life. When a person comes face to face with 
this reality and experiences this radical change of mind, the church becomes precious to her. And she wants to gather with her church family. Repentance is not a change of behavior, but it leads to changes in behavior. But people try to take shortcuts. They try to change their behavior without this change of mind. Instead of repentance, they turn over a new leaf. In their shame, they promise God, for example, that they won't lie anymore. But shame and promises, even when genuine, are not the same thing as repentance. It won't be long before they find themselves in a tough spot and fall right back into deceit. Because they haven't experienced a change of mind repentance. Deep down, they still believe a lie can be a very present help in time of trouble. And they will return to it. Or they get disgusted with themselves and they say, I will never look at porn again. I'm turning over a new leaf. But because their thinking hasn't changed, they'll turn that leaf back over again. Or they say, I'm going to church from now on. I am going to start going to church. And they really mean it. But because their thinking hasn't changed, and they haven't seen the church's incredible value, that promise won't sustain them. After a late night on Saturday, they'll allow themselves to sleep in. Just this once, they'll say. But it won't be long before they're right back where they started, or even a few steps behind that. John the Baptist had seen the reality of God's presence and purpose in the world, and it had changed him, changed his thinking, and he was sure that if other people saw it, they would change too. But John was not naive. He knew that some people coming had no intention of change, and that's why he warns them in verse 8, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I was reading this verse in preparation in Greek, and I just love the way this verse just leaps off the page. It sounds so realistic. Don't you even think about saying, we have Abraham as our father. That attitude, you know, maybe other people really need that change, but, you know, not so much me. I, I'm all right, pretty much the way I am. That set John off. And he warned people against it. He knew his hearers would be tempted to think they were okay because they were religious people. And we have Abraham as our father. As if that were some kind of free pass. Now most of us can't say we have Abraham as our father. But we can engage in the same kind of thinking without realizing it. Perhaps God speaks to us through, through something we've read in the Bible or a book or a magazine article or through a sermon. And our conscience has been pricked. It's telling us something's wrong. Something needs to change. Our ideas have been challenged. How will we respond? Now, probably not by saying, well, we have Abraham as our father, but we might say, I already go to church every Sunday. Well, maybe not every Sunday, but at least twice a month. Except during summer vacation, holidays, you know. But, or we might say, I've believed in God my whole life. Or I've given thousands of dollars to charity. Just this week, someone said to me, I try to help people whenever I can. What would John say to that? He'd say, don't even think about saying that you help people. What do I care if you help people? You can't justify yourself. You need to repent. Now, before we go on, let me clarify something about repentance. Repentance does not save you. Only God can do that. 
Repentance puts you in a place where you're savable. It puts you in a place where you want to be saved. Some of the people who heard John speak, they knew in their hearts that he was right. But they told themselves, just as we might tell ourselves, man, I got to do something about this tomorrow. I got to get things straightened out with God later. I once urged a friend to give his life to God, but he wasn't open to repentance. What he said to me was, look, when I'm older, I'm going to do all that religious stuff. But I've got a life to do before that happens. But John says, you don't know if you have tomorrow. There might not be a later. The axe, this is verse 9, is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now look at verse 10. Hearing that, recognizing the authority with which John spoke, the crowd said, what should we do then? What should we do? I was thinking this week about how John might have answered that question if he'd been educated in the U.S. in some Rogerian school of psychology. When they said, what should we do? He would have answered, what do you think you should do? And had they said, "Um, maybe we should share what we have with others, he would have said, do you think you should share what you have with others? Now, Carl Rogers has some profound, helpful insights into the practice of therapy. He was actually going into the ministry before some changes happened in his life. Um, But John the Baptist didn't know them. He was not client-centered. He was God-centered and very directive. He told his hearers, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Now, we don't like that very much. If we have ten tunics hanging in our closet, some of them that haven't been in style since disco went out, we might give two of them to the Salvation Army or Coats for Kids. And people in the first century felt the same way. I'm pretty sure when they heard John say this, they thought, how can I give away one of my tunics? I only have two. They're not going to last forever. And right here is where we see how repentance fits into this picture and why generosity is one of its most predictable fruits. The God-given Holy Spirit-inspired change of mind that is repentance transforms the way we think about everything and that includes our own security. That truth, by the way, is hugely important in the teaching of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. Repentance opens my eyes to the fact that God is really here. He sees and he cares and I live under his rule and protection. Because of that, I can be generous. I don't have to hoard. I don't have to worry. I can give. God's here. He'll take care of me. I can do what he calls me to do. Even though when I look at my finances, I don't see how. But if he calls me, he'll take care of me. What seemed impossible to do before repentance seems like common sense after repentance.
Now, as soon as we see the relationship between repentance and its fruit, all of John's instruction here begins to make sense. He's not saying, do these things. Be generous. Give to people in need. Be honest. Be helpful. Do these things and God will save you. That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying, do these things and so prove that you're saved. He's saying, once you've repented, you'll do these things because you'll think of yourselves and others and especially of God differently. You'll be free to act in ways you wouldn't even consider before because you'll know that God will take care of you. Now there's something else here to notice. Something of, I think, practical significance to us. When people ask John, as God's spokesman, what they should do with their lives, he didn't tell them to leave their secular jobs and do something religious. He didn't say, go to the temple and offer a sacrifice or volunteer at the synagogue. He told his hearers to live out their repentance and their baptism in everyday life. In other words, he didn't say to the tax collector, you need to join the Essene religious movement. He said, you need to be an honest tax collector. He didn't tell the soldiers to leave the military and find some peaceful job. He told them to be good men and honest soldiers. In most cases, a person will not have to leave his job to serve God and live out a faith commitment to him. We can do that right where we are. In fact, we must do that right where we are. Repentance that's not worked out in daily life, on the job, at home, is a very incomplete repentance. People are coming to John and it is obvious to them that his message, his demeanor, his authority all carry the stamp of God. God is involved in this man and his work and what he's saying. And so it was only natural for them to wonder if he might, verse 15, be the Christ. Now let me give you a little background by way of explanation. During this era of the the end of the previous century, the beginning of this century, there was a widespread belief in Israel that God was about to send the Messiah to rescue and lead the Jewish people. Some great leader would be born in Israel who would lead them. And remarkably, that belief was not limited to Israel. The first century historian Suetonius, writing towards the end of the century, said there had spread all over the Orient, an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the earth. Judea is just a little place. The Roman Tacitus in the first century wrote, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. Even Gentile countries We're looking for a world ruler to arise out of Israel, which explains, by the way, why the Magi headed to Jerusalem when they saw the star. Within Israel, multitudes of people were expecting God's Messiah. There was a movement, particularly in the northern part of the country, a a messianic movement of sort, one person after another saying, I am the Messiah So when John, full of authority and personal charisma, just off the charts, broke onto the scene, 
people naturally wondered if he was the one. John answered their question in the negative. You could summarize his answer this way. I'm not Messiah. But get ready, because here he comes. At that time, John didn't yet know who the Messiah would be. But he did know he would be powerful, more powerful than I, verse 16. He knew that he would be eminently important, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. There's a little background to that. The rabbi said that a disciple must do all the work a slave would do for his rabbi, except tying or untying his sandals. That's where they drew the line. That was too menial. And yet John said that he wasn't worthy to serve the coming one, even in that capacity. He also told them that the coming one would be capable of actions that no one else could accomplish. He would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now he's talking, of course, of Messiah Jesus. In Luke's second volume of the history of Jesus, which we call the book of Acts, the book, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is chronicled. And those baptized in the Spirit, this is Acts chapter 2, were unified, formed into new people, and animated by a new life. They became, in Paul's memorable phrase in Ephesians, a new man. This group became a new man. They became the church, the body of Christ in the world. The coming one would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism with fire probably refers to the troubles that come into our lives. Those troubles can either destroy or purify. And they will purify those who've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now there's something else here. I want you to notice the work that the coming one is going to do. He will separate the valuable wheat from the worthless chaff. That is the Messiah will be the instrument of judgment. By his coming he'll reveal people's true natures. The good he will preserve, even though it's currently hidden within the evil. The evil, though it blends in with the good, he will separate out and destroy. He will bring judgment. Judgment. That is a scary word to us. We know our own failures and our flaws all too well, and so we recoil at the idea of judgment. But look at how Luke wraps up this section in verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Did you catch that? John's message of repentance and of judgment is good news. In our upside-down world, people hate the thought of repentance. They think of it as bad news. But Luke knew better. Repentance is the good news, that things are not what they seem, that life can be different and better, that we really can change. Our lives can change and we can live in harmony with God. Even judgment is good news. The promise of judgment is only a threat to those who refuse to see life for what it really is and are unwilling to change. Unwilling to align themselves with the real good of the universe. For everyone else, the promise of judgment is good news. It is the promise. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. 
but particularly in the Psalms. It is the promise that evil, like that done at the Sandy Hook Elementary School this week, will come to an end and evildoers will no longer be capable of causing harm. Evil grows in our world like weeds in a garden. Alongside the sweetest innocence is bitter guilt. Alongside beauty lies hideousness. Alongside peace lies pandemonium. And I say alongside as if these things were distinct and divisible. But in this world, evil and good are more like ingredients in a solution where everything is mixed together. And we know that because it's mixed together in us too. So what hope is there? How can things ever change? They can change because the coming one has the power to change everything. Evil will be judged and stopped. And I'm not just talking about troubled young men like the one who caused so much grief in Connecticut. I'm talking about the evil that exercises dominion in our world, spiritual powers that are entrenched in systems and cultures and governments and even in religious organizations. Powers led by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, St. Paul describes him, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Judgment is coming on them. The coming one alone can separate evil from good. He will set right what has gone wrong. He will bring evil to an end and give relief to those who are troubled, as Paul tells the Thessalonians. Judgment is good news. But it is only good news because when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. We're trying to prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas. But we can't really appreciate the priceless worth of the baby laid in a manger until we trust the sacrifice of the man nailed to the cross and submit to the purpose of the king coming to save his people and destroy evil forever. As the church has long understood, we get ready to worship the babe by getting ready to receive the king. Are you ready? Let's pray. God, we hear these words about the one who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we say, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come and rescue your people. We wait for you. Amen.